TJ Parker sold his online pharmacy company for a billion dollars to Amazon. He's been hunted by the FBI, and he's one of the most entertaining people on Twitter these days. Basically, after his earnout to Am at Amazon, he's been really enjoying life, kind of skiing and driving old cars and building a family farm and just kind of talking about startups and also just life broadly and his family. And I've just enjoyed his takes. And uh, so I wanted to do a, an episode on him. He kind of epitomizes what I've been referring to this podcast as power law people. Um, he's kind of on the most extreme end of the power law for direct-to-consumer entrepreneurs. And we'll kind of go through how he wound up having such a you know, incredible outcome with his company PillPack and how he was able to navigate the quagmire that is direct-to-consumer uh, e-commerce companies and kind of come out on top. Um, I've also just enjoyed interacting with him on Twitter. He's, he's a really, really big car enthusiast. And so every time I posted, I, I recently got into cars mostly because of Doug DeMuro. And uh, every time I post a really dumb opinion about cars or highlight some modern car, he always replies being like, oh, this is like the dumbest take I've ever heard. Everything in this list is terrible, uh, which is very entertaining because he clearly really knows this stuff. And I think he's been, I think he's been into cars since he was a kid. Um, but uh, he's, he's a very entertaining follow, a lot of good advice and a lot of, a lot of, uh, he clearly like speaks, speaks his mind because he's, you know, massively successful at this point. Um, so let's go through the background on how he built up PillPack, take it through the sale, go through some of his thoughts and philosophy on business, entrepreneurship and uh, pharmacy and direct to consumer e-commerce in general. And then we'll go into kind of what he's doing next and, and how he's thinking about life these days. Um, so he was born in 1986. He grew up in Concord, New Hampshire. Uh, and he was kind of destined to be a pharmacy entrepreneur. Like everything about his life is just pharmacy, pharmacy, pharmacy. His family ran a mom and pop pharmacy, which will become really, really important later. And he had a pretty entrepreneurial childhood from what I can tell. Like at seven years old, he had this paper route. He'd get up at 5 a.m. every morning and just kind of go out into the world. And um, that's something you don't really see that often. Uh, you know, people are pretty protective of their kids, but it seems like he was able to kind of just get out and experience the world, which is pretty awesome. Um, so he works at his parents' pharmacy and is filling prescriptions. And he, he talks about one formative experience where he's delivering drugs or, you know, prescriptions to an elderly woman with glaucoma and she can't read the prescriptions. And um, so he's writing the different, like a code letter, like a, the first letter of the prescription of the medication on every bottle um, so that she can see it nice and big. And clearly, you know, this comes into play later when he, you know, develops PillPack, which is this online pharmacy that helps people uh, consume multiple medications all just in one little package so they don't need to mess around with any of the pill bottles. Um, so he's working at the pharmacy and the, the business, you know, it's not that actually that small of a pharmacy. It seems like his dad was actually pretty successful and wound up brokering one of the first multi pharmacy acquisitions for CVS and was on the board of pharmacists and was, was pretty well respected in the community. So he is kind of destined to go into the family business. So in 2006, He's 20 and he starts or 
probably 18, I guess. I don't know. Um, he starts pursuing his uh, doctorate in pharmacy at uh, the Massachusetts Col College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences in Boston. And it's very fortunate that he's in Boston because obviously Boston's a huge college town. And so he has access to other colleges. So he goes to Mass Art, which is the art school in the area. And I think they shared a, uh, like a, uh, a mess hall where everyone would eat. And so he was able to take design classes over there. And then eventually he's able to go across the Charles River to MIT and kind of sneak into classes there and attend business and startup events over at MIT. And I actually did the exact same thing when I was in Boston, right around this time. I'm surprised I never ran into him um, because I went to Northeastern and um, it was always fun to go over to Harvard or MIT. And uh, Microsoft had this big uh, the New England Research and Design Center, the NERD, where they would host startup events. And uh, it was just a great community in Boston for around this time. And so he snuck into MIT and helped with this business plan competition called 100K, uh, which is really funny that he was able to like judge businesses, even though he wasn't even going there. But it just kind of speaks to his, you know, ability to kind of just not really play by the rules, just kind of slip through things, ask for, you know, instead of asking for permission, he's begging for forgiveness. And this is kind of a broader theme that will continue through the entire PillPack journey. And so while he's there in 2011, he meets Elliot Cohen, who would become his co-founder at PillPack. And Elliot was a computer scientist from the Bay Area, uh, and he had been studying business at Sloan's business school at, 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 at MIT. Uh, so MIT's business school is called Sloan. And Elliot's about three years older than TJ. And he had graduated uh, with a comp sci degree from Berkeley in 2005. And Elliot had done a bunch of interesting stuff. His, his early resume is like just tons and tons of different projects. It seems like he did this weird computer science like hacking project on Mount Everest that was funded by NASA. And it seems like he also tried to start up kind of in the healthcare space, um, but it never really went anywhere. He worked on that for a couple of years. And then he, it also sounded like Elliot worked at Founder Collective, which is a early stage seed venture capital firm that actually wound up funding PillPack. So it seems like Elliot was probably a conduit to like the venture world a little bit for TJ. Um, and when TJ first pitched him PillPack, uh, Cohen, uh, like Elliot Cohen, his co-founder, wasn't really into it until he went home and saw his dad who had undergone quadruple bypass heart surgery while in high school. And his and Elliot's dad was really struggling to manage multiple uh, medications. And at that point, he sees that, okay, this is a real problem for lots of people. Even someone in my life, you know, his dad is having this problem. So, you know, he texts TJ and is like, I'm in, like, let's, let's go build a prototype. And so um, the, while TJ is hanging out at MIT, he actually creates a hackathon at MIT, even though he's not a student there, called Hacking Medicine. And this organization is still going on today. And so if you're at, you're at, you're at MIT and you want to go and you know develop a business plan and pitch it, MIT has this program called Hacking Medicine where they'll, you know, hear your pitch and, you know, probably introduce you to VCs and kind of give you the, the, the typical feedback that comes from one of these uh, competitions. And so in 2012, he, uh, TJ graduates and he basically just becomes a pharmacist because that's what you do after you get a pharmacy degree. Um, but he still has this idea of pill pack, this idea to package multiple medications in a single little 
you know, cellophane uh, or like plastic bag, and then you can just rip it off and all your drugs are in one little packet every day, as opposed to pulling out all those different bottles. Uh, there's like a, it, most people, if you're young, you might only have like one pill bottle for something. Um, but as you get older, you might be on multiple medications and there's kind of a, a ritual where you get all your medications and then you put them in these little pill containers and it, it, it's, it, it takes a long time. And um, TJ recognized that, you know, in other countries, they already did this in the Netherlands and South Korea. This was kind of the standard of care, this, this putting the pills in individual packets. And uh, TJ's dad had done this in the pharmacy. Uh, they, he, you know, he would dispense the pills into daily strips for nursing home patients who had trouble managing their medications. And so the, the interesting thing is like the scale of opportunity here was massive, um, but I think it took someone with, you know, this insane background and this, th th this like really, really credible background and this history in the pharmacy industry to actually go after it effectively. Cause you'll see, there's been a lot of, you know, a, a lot of attempts and very few of them have worked out. So, uh, th there's this funny stat, uh, sales of Abilify, which is a drug used to de treat depression that brings in $6.4 billion in revenue every year. Whereas the entire digital music industry brings in 5.3 billion. So one, a single pharma product is bigger than the entire digital music industry, at least when, when, when they started, this was the case. And the, and the US healthcare industry as a whole is $3 trillion. So it's just, it's just a massive, massive industry, but it's very, very impenetrable. And it's very difficult to actually create a company that gets to scale. And TJ recognized something really, really interesting, which is his kind of his key insight that I think underpinned everything that he did at Pellpack the entire time he was building the business. And that insight was that healthcare companies don't get big by driving better health outcomes. They only win when they offer something more convenient at lower cost. And this was what Pellpack would wind up doing with their B2C business and their B2B business. And this was always the focus was you, you can only, you can't, even though it, it feels like you should just focus on the health outcome, consumers only respond to convenience and cost. So that's what you should keep in mind. Um, and I think that that's, that that's definitely the correct orientation here for, for a lot of businesses, but, but obviously specifically in healthcare. And so in 2013, he incorporates Techstars, or he incorporates PillPack and joins Techstars. So February, 2013, he starts Techstars and then uh, PillPack becomes a startup in residence at IDEO, which is this big design firm. And they've designed some incredible products. And while he's there, he really orients PillPack to be one of the first really design forward D2C companies. This became a major, major trend. And, and after PillPack and Warby Parker and all throughout the late 2010s, every direct-to-consumer company was focused on design. But TJ was focused on design kind of in a different way. It didn't just need to look good. The goal was, you know, the medications needed to be easier to read and harder to mess up for old people. So, you know, you just have to be able to rip this bag and take everything you need. And uh, it's, it's crazy because now the design is in the Smithsonian Museum and it's been like lauded as, you know, a really, really impactful design innovation. And uh, TJ now is like obsessed with design and, and is like, constantly posting about like Steve Jobs and obsessed with, you know, all, all these like great simple designs, like going back to like the old cars that he loves and, and, and all the different uh, design inspiration that he pulls from. Um, 
So while he's working with IDEO, they help him kind of iterate on this prototype. So they're not live, they're not actually shipping yet, but they're able to reduce the number of screens that it takes to sign up. They, they, it was 10 different screens to properly sign up for PillPack. They get that down to three, it's much more simple. The focus had been just on, hey, look at how cool this packaging was when really it, they needed to they needed to make it clear that they were a pharmacy and that PillPack would replace your pharmacy, and which seemed obvious to the PillPack team and TJ, but it wasn't clear to the consumer. So they so they had to reorient kind of the landing pages to make sure that people would understand that hey, you you won't need to go to CVS anymore. You'll just order PillPack, set up an account, and then it'll just come in the mail. And they also did some other interesting things where, you know, instead of monthly prescriptions, they would do every two weeks because it's easier to think about the day that it comes. So, oh, my medications come on Monday, on every other Monday. That's easier to think about than at the start of the month. That could be a Monday, it could be a Wednesday, it could be a Saturday, you don't know. Um, so they, they did all these like really minor things that added up to a much more delightful experience. And uh, at the time, I mean, <laughs> like, like the pharmacy industry was not thinking about design or or technology in this way whatsoever. And the great example is like <laughs> Walgreens and CVS, like they'd been pursuing, you know, digital initiatives and like trying to do things, but it was all terrible. Like CVS had launched this iPad app and it was just a 3D representation of the store. And so it like makes no sense. Like why would you want to walk around a virtual pharmacy it, that's not what you actually want. You just want your medications to just get delivered and not have to deal with the pharmacy at all. So obviously like the, the incumbents were not going to solve this problem. And so it's an interesting business because in, uh, in Techstars, they, they wind up raising half a million dollars from some angels. They're clearly kind of a darling of the, of the Techstars class and, and people kind of recognize that this is a big opportunity. And they, they're using robots to pack these pills into individual packs. And the, these pill sorting robots, they actually already existed. So there wasn't a huge engineering challenge, but uh, you know, obviously there's a lot of work to do on the implementation side and a lot of software to write to like make sure it happens properly. And uh, there's, this, there's this funny quote from Hacker News in 2014. Uh, this guy says, I would imagine that the ideal scenario is someone designing completely automated equipment for dispensing pills, verifying the pills visually via OpenCV or other computer vision software and packing the pills in a box ready for delivery. This would do the same for mail order medication as Kiva did for Amazon warehouse automation. And this was like years, years, years before they got acquired by Amazon, but it's, it's like exactly what wound up happening. So Kiva is this robotics company that helps Amazon warehouses move boxes around. Uh, there's these really cool robots. It was another multi-billion dollar acquisition, very cool company. But, um, but it's just funny that in 2014, um, the, the, the response to, to PillPack generally on Hacker News was actually pretty good. Usually when I go back and look at a company when they launch on Hacker News, it's always just people saying, oh, I could just do this with a command line or why would you ever need this? this is, it's usually really negative. But in this case, people were actually pretty positive on it. Um, and, uh, and, and, and there were a bunch of other like really, really bad approaches to improving the medication management experience. So there were a lot of like mobile apps around this time to just remind you to take your pills. And of course, like 
any of these reminder apps, they all suck. Like you, you get you have a million apps on your phone, you see the notification, it's just not effective. It's much better just to have, oh, every day I open up this packet and I just take all the pills inside. Uh, there was also a company that was building a an internet connected pill bottle cap that would notify your doctor if you didn't take your pills. So just imagine how difficult that is. Like it needs to be connected to the Wi-Fi. If a connection doesn't work, then you know it's not gonna report that. And why is it telling your doctor? It, it just like doesn't make any sense, like terrible, uh, terrible solution to the problem. But the problem was very, very real. And there were also people building like mach machines to dispense medications at home, which makes no sense because the machines should just be at the pharmacy, which is what PillPack wound up doing. They they bought all the robots and the machines. They do the packaging for you, and then you can just enjoy the 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 properly packed uh, pills when they arrive in the mail. Um, and so the company's doing well, and. Uh, founder Collective comes in, this guy, David Frankel, who's I think one of the founders there, um, or like a GPs, and they do uh, 3 million on a 10 million post, I think. Uh, so they take about 30% of the company and that's in 2013. And then they're basically ready to launch at this point. So uh, the pharmacy officially launched in February of 2014. And in the very early days, the founders, they only had 50 customers. So it was nine employees and they'd meet for pizza parties at TJ's apartment and they'd email friends and family trying to sell them drugs. They, they, they would use that term just to like increase the customer base. So they're really, really hustling. And, uh, and TJ even hired his dad, who was of course a pharmacist. And I mean, obviously it's great to work with your family, but, uh, he, uh, but his dad was really, really helpful because he was also the, he'd been the president of the board of pharmacists and he had done the first multi-store acquisition for CVS and ran a big chain of pharmacies. And then when PillPack needed to send someone official to like the board of pharmacy, it wouldn't be these, you know, young scrappy startup kids showing up. It would be a very official, very, you know, experienced pharmacist showing up. So uh, that, that was a very interesting, but good decision early on. So, so the company launches, they do pretty well. And so they raise their series B from Excel. Fred Destin comes in and they do 9 million on 30 posts. So another 30% dilution round. And there's this theme of, of PillPack where they take pretty serious dilution, but it still works out perfectly because they're just, they're just growing aggressively. And, uh, and you know, TJ to this day says like, yeah, it wouldn't have done anything differently. Like we needed to grow. And, uh, a big part of that growth came from scaling on Facebook. So D 2 C companies were all, this was like the prime prime time to grow on Facebook, right? In 2014, uh, the targeting was getting really good and every D2C company was just off to the races, spending a ton of money on Facebook. And so that's where, you know, PillPack got their initial customers, but they needed this odd approval and it took them like nine months to get it um, because selling pharmac ph ph pharmaceuticals online, you need some special approval. Um, and uh, so, so they finally get that and it's off to the races, the company's scaling and that kind of takes them into their series C, but, uh, they were really good at managing social media generally. And this will just be a theme throughout the growth of the company. Um, and TJ had this interesting, uh, moment kind of viral moment where, um, he had discovered that pills used to treat obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, were packed in this chaotic jumble. And he posted the picture to Reddit and he, and he propagated this hashtag MedGyver to see how doctors and nurses would, you know, cleverly deliver care. And so 
like if you think about it, like the OCD community is kind of like the perfect, the perfect early adopter for pill pack because it like neatly organizes all of your pills. And like, if you're OCD, you probably really, really want that. Uh, so, so very funny, very sneaky, like, you know, using Reddit and hashtags to, to approach like the best early customer. I don't know how big of a driver the OCD community was early on, but it just kind of shows like how tapped in he was to like kind of recognize that as a, as a potential growth engine and then, and then capitalize on it. So uh, Charles River Ventures, another East Coast firm, comes in uh, for Series C in 2015, 50 million on 250. And uh, the product had caught on and the company was, you know, it, by June of 2015, they'd shipped a million drug packages. And, um, you know, TJ gets named to Forbes 30 under 30 and Fortune is writing about the pharmacy of the future and everything looks really, really great. Uh, but things are about to get way, way more chaotic as they start scaling because they're 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 going to show up on the on the radar of uh, you know their their enemies, their competitors. Uh, and it's interesting because at this point, you know, like they're only a couple of years in this company and they've already raised like sixty, seventy million dollars, and they didn't want to raise all this money. Of course, like TJ says, he doesn't regret it because everyone wound up making a ton of money. It was great, but. They didn't want to have to raise all this money because really they just had this cash flow problem that they needed to solve. So it's medication management is a pretty low margin business. And they have and they have this really tough thing where they get they they have to pay for the pills and then they have to send them and then there's costs there and then they have to get reimbursed by the uh, by the insurance companies and it all it all takes a long time so they'd been trying to get on net ninety terms meaning that they wouldn't have to pay. Uh, you know, on time, they would be able to have like three months to actually pay their bills. Um, and that would create like, you know, a huge, it really solved their working capital problem. Uh, and they had tried to get on these net 90 terms with their suppliers in exchange for equity, which is a really interesting idea that I haven't heard anyone try before. It, it didn't work. <laughs> they, they, they wound up, you know, having to raise all this money and they never got that done. But I think that's very interesting for people who are in a situation where, you know, they have this working capital issue. It could be solved by just better payment terms with their suppliers. Is there a world where you, you know, exchange equity and give your supplier economics in your business um, in exchange for these terms? Like that would have really, really unlocked a lot of value for the for the company and just improved their cash flow position much, much better. Uh, it would have improved it a lot, but it, it didn't work out, but it didn't matter because they were able to raise a ton of money. So, you know, they solved that problem with like traditional venture capital. Um, but things were about to get a lot more complicated because in 2016, the company PillPack was pretty big at this point. 200 people, they're licensed in all 50 states. Like the, the model is working. They're acquiring customers. The customers are happy. They're delivering everything. They're generating revenue. Like everything is great. But there's the kind of 600 pound gorilla in the space, uh, which is Express Scripts. And Express Scripts is a $45 billion company and they control over one third of all prescriptions in America. So they're really, 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 really powerful. They are what's called a pharmacy benefit manager or PBM. And I'm gonna try and explain this like as simply as possible because it's, you know, healthcare jargon and it's not the most fun topic, but it, it's really important to the story. So when you go to the pharmacy 
a, the PBM basically checks your cover uh, your coverage. Like they are the rails in the in the same way that like you know the Visa network is like the payment rails for all e-commerce online. Like PBMs are the rails for pharmacy. So they calculate your copay. They're basically their job is to match all the different pharmacies to all the different insurance companies. There are sixty thousand pharmacies roughly in America, and there are thousands of insurance companies, and they can't all match with everyone else. So they need to calculate all the copays. They need to, you know, figure out what the insurance will play will pay, apply discounts and rebates. There's all this stuff that needs to happen in order to actually get the medication paid for by insurance. And so the PBMs like intermediate that, and they also validate that you're getting the right meds. Uh, they'll move you over to generics if that's an option, and they'll make sure that you're, you know, getting prescribed the right thing. So if you go to if you go to like you know your you go to one doctor and they give you one prescription and then you go to a different doctor, they give you a different prescription and you fill those at two different pharmacies. Like they, like the PBM will actually be able to flag bad interactions between those drugs and flag that to the pharmacist. Like, Hey, this person's on, on, on this drug. You, you need to talk to them about that. Um, and that gets really important in a situation like pill pack where you're, con you're, you know, the, the customer is consuming multiple drugs. Um, and the PBM it actually is actually what gets the pharmacy paid. Um, and so the PBM and the pharmacy have pre-negotiated prices for these drugs. And so Express Scripts is like a really crucial partner for PillPack. And they, <laughs> so uh, in, in 2016, Express Scripts announces that they're going to cut off PillPack and that PillPack will no longer be able to, you know, integrate with Express Scripts. And uh, they basically fucked with the wrong founder because TJ goes on this tear. It's awesome. He wins. It's great. Uh, but let's go through what, what exactly happened. So uh, Express Scripts had their own mail order pharmacy. So clearly there was some like, you know, competitive motivation here. Um, but basically they, Express Scripts says, hey, at the end of April, we're going to block, you know, anyone who uses Express Scripts, that's 85 million members from using PillPack. And at this point, 30% of PillPack customers are, you know, integrated with, with Express Scripts on the back end. So this would be an immediate 30% drop in revenue for PillPack. It would be really, really bad. And they wouldn't really have a pathway to access those customers. And it would just ruin the experience because you'd show up to PillPack and, and, and the question would be like, well, are you on the Express Scripts PBM and like no one knows if they're on Express Scripts or not. So it, it would just be this really, really huge wrench in the, in the customer experience flow. So not a good situation. And uh, Express Scripts would not negotiate or even talk to PillPack. And so TJ really just has to go on the offensive. So he sets up this war room at the office and his whole team is putting in like 16 hour days and they come up with this campaign called hashtag fix pharmacy. And they bring in their marketing team and they produce videos featuring customers talking about how important PillPack is as a service. And, uh, you know, Express Scripts is saying that, you know, they'd like to work with PillPack and they've worked with them to be in the network, but there are standards and regulations and industry practices that you have to follow. So basically, um, at this point, PillPack was, was operating with Express Scripts as a... Uh, as a physical pharmacy because they did have a physical pharmacy in New Hampshire. And there was this weird, like the difference between a physical pharmacy and a mail order pharmacy wasn't like a legal definition. It was more just about how frequently the prescriptions were filled. 
um, and like how things were paid for and the, the co-pays. So PillPack would mail its medications to patients, which was a major selling point, but everything, everything, out, everything else about the business model was closer to the definition of a retail pharmacy. So they were technically partnered as a retail pharmacy and Express Scripts didn't like that. So they were going to kick off PillPack. It was going to be existential for PillPack. So, uh, so TJ launches this, launches this website called fixpharmacy.com. And he features the stories of 400 PillPack users who would be affected by the change. He has a timeline of PillPack's version of events. And he even has like a sample letter that you can send to legislators. Um, and this was really critical because there was an election going on in 2016 and there was a big focus on drug costs. So it was like the perfect time to draw attention to the fact that the pharmacy world was pretty broken and there was this like kind of anti-competitive behavior going on. And so the media campaign worked really well. Uh, if you go and search hashtag fix pharmacy on Twitter, you can still see, or x.com, you can still see uh, like the old tweets from 2016 because there were a lot of people posting at that time. And thousands of testimonials poured in and it got Express Scripts to come to the table. But then something really, really funny happened. So, so, PillPack is negotiating with Express Scripts and you know they're going to get a contract in place where they're going to pay the right amount and everyone's going to be happy. But they had, but PillPack and TJ and his team had, had scheduled a Facebook campaign to amplify the Fix Pharmacy website and, and some of these stories. Uh, and the, and, but they had planned to uh, just target Express Scripts employees on Facebook so that everyone at Express Scripts would be like, oh my God, this, this campaign's going viral. I'm seeing it every two seconds on my Facebook feed. I, like, we have to do something about this. Um, but in reality, they were only spending like a couple dollars to promote this. Back then, you know, you could target very, very precisely on, on Facebook. Now you can't really do that. But, um, but so, the, so the Facebook campaign goes live and everyone at Express Scripts freaks, freaks out. Like they think that PillPack is going to war again. And, uh, and so, you know, TJ has to call them up and be like, oh yeah, we'll turn that off. Like, sorry, you know, we're, we're actually happy with the, with the way ne the, go the negotiations are going. And so, um, you know, they, they get through it and, uh, this wasn't the, the last time they'd run into trouble. Uh, PillPack, uh, they, at one point they got blocked by Walgreens, like Walgreens bl hard blocked PillPack's phone number nationwide so that PillPack couldn't call the pharmacy and request transfers because that was part of it was that if you signed up for PillPack and you say, hey, I already have all these medications at Walgreens, PillPack would call Walgreens and say, oh, we'd like to transfer these medications from Walgreens to PillPack. And Walgreens realized that they were losing a bunch of business. So they just blocked PillPack's phone number nationwide. So no, so no, so PillPack couldn't call any of their Walgreens locations. But of course, like it's really easy to change your outbound phone number. So PillPack just got around it, which is very, very silly. But again, a perfect example of TJ just kind of like, you know, working around the problems, kind of begging for forgiveness, moving really fast. It's just a great entrepreneurial story. I love it. Um, and, uh, and, and they got into a beef with CVS as well. Uh, CVS actually trained their entire national staff of pharmacists to lie to pill pack pharmacists to try and avoid transferring prescriptions. Cause that was like, a, you know, it's a big problem. You don't want to lose the revenue. So these companies are constantly, these pharmacies, these big pharmacies are constantly trying to figure out ways to not lose prescriptions to pill pack, even though the pill pack customer, like they're going to get a better experience. <laughs> um, so, you, you, you know, it's kind of questionable what they're doing, but you know, I guess all fairs and all's fair in love and war and business. Um, and so what CVS would do is, is pill pack would call 
And then CVS, the pharmacist at, pharma at CVS would say, okay, can you give me the patient's name and date of birth? And then they'd put pill pack on hold and then they'd immediately go call the patient, like the person who was currently a CVS customer and explain that, hey, CVS actually has a similar product. It's multi-dose packaging. Like, can we get you on this? Like, don't leave. Like they're basically turning their pharmacists into like, you know, sales reps for their new multi-dose for their pill pack competitor, uh, which is like hilarious. And then of course, like, you know, years later, uh, CVS just shut down their online pharmacy business because it wasn't going well. And, you know, TJ got to dunk on, on Twitter, which is very fun. Um, so, you know, he gets through all the chaos of 2016. And it's at this point that, you know, they're starting to level up operationally. And TJ has this hilarious quote about, uh, about kind of when his mindset shifted as a you know founder ceo uh he says i distinctly remember when my <laughs> i distinctly remember when my anxieties flipped from worrying about getting fired by my board to realizing there was no way i could quit if i wanted to <laughs> and uh, it's just so true it's like yeah like at this point like he's he's just clearly like the only person that can run this business and uh and yeah, like like getting him out of this is just going to be like ridiculous. Like he's so critical to the business that uh, you know he 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 needs to like make it work. And so you know the the, the exit to Amazon I think was probably pretty cathartic because it allowed him to kind of move on to the next thing. Um, and so at, at this point, PillPack needs to level up operationally. Uh, you know they're scaling a lot. That's really hard. The company's making serious money. They can't really make mistakes anymore. All the regulatory stuff, all the operation stuff, all the financial stuff. Like this needs to be worked out. Um, and so they line up more financing for their. I think it's Series D. And uh, but they want to bring on a proper operator. And so they find this woman Yvonne How or How. HAO, and they want her to come on as uh, chief operating officer and chief financial officer. And she'd been an operating partner at Bain Capital for over eight years. So Bain Capital, big private equity firm, they have, they have investing partners that go and find deals. And then they also have operating partners that step into the companies and kind of turn them around and take them to the next level and do all the operational stuff. And so she'd been on the, on the operational side. She was a VP at Honeywell, did McKinsey out of college. Like she's, a, she's like a real, real, like, you know, just big company operator can really scale this business and make sure it's running efficiently. And uh, yeah, she's actually now the, after the Amazon stuff and she got out, got out of there, she's now the secretary of economic development for all of Massachusetts, which is kind of cool. Um, and so they have this funny board meeting where they're trying to close Yvonne and uh, everyone at the, in the, at the board level like knows the company's a mess because they kind of put off uh, hiring this operator uh, for about maybe nine months too long. And, but they can't make it look too messy or else she won't want to join. But they also need to, you know, make it clear that like, hey, there's some real problems that you need to solve. Um, but it works out, they get her in and, uh, and she helps like fix a lot of the junk in the business. Um, but they're still able to stay focused on, you know, the product and the customer. And so uh, they also add this guy, Jim Messina to the board of directors. Um, and he was kind of the Obama's, the Obama White House's fixer. And so he's obviously, you know, super familiar with healthcare and can do a lot of the negotiation on the on the insurance side. Um, and at this point, like the company is very, very mature, hundreds of employees doing very well. And so um, in, in May of 2018, TJ goes to Seattle to meet with some Amazon folks and uh, he's engaged Catalyst Partners, which is Frank Quattrone's uh, 
investment bank and th this investment bank has like sold a ton of companies to Amazon. So uh, they're kind of the best in the business for this. And TJ kind of already knows that Amazon's like the logical acquirer here. And so he meets with uh, Nadir Kabani, who's been at Amazon for 14 years and, uh, you know, is really thinking about, he was the VP of consumables at the time. And he's thinking about the pharmacy industry and how Amazon's going to solve this. And they wound up acquiring a bunch of companies and PillPack was one of them. And uh, so they get the deal done. Um, but there's a bunch of other interesting stuff that happens. So uh, at that point, PillPack was 800 people and it was a very high growth, but very low margin business, like a traditional retailer. And they had to use the majority of the revenue to pay for inventory, which we've kind of talked about before. And uh, Fred Destin, one of the early PillPack investors said, you know, it's a complicated and expensive space with a potentially big prize, uh, which basically means like, it's the type of business that Jeff Bezos loves, you know, huge dollars, antiquated technology, and so many regula regulatory barriers that the smart money is staying far away. Bezos knows something about the industry, having taken a board seat at drugstore.com in the 90s after Amazon invested in the company. And so Bezos has been thinking about this for, for you know, probably decades at this point. And, uh, you know, he just kind of sees that PillPack has finally found like the proper wedge to get into the space. And so they... They, they were basically able to buy the one company in the space that all the other pharmacy benefit managers, all the other PBMs were threatened by. And, you know, the value for Amazon is in, you know, the, the value to Amazon was the promise of plugging the delivery network into the giant e-commerce machine. Um, and it was, th this was potentially going to be a huge revenue lift for Amazon because the average pill pack user in 2018 was worth about $5,000 in annual revenue through insurance payments and patient co-pays, whereas the average Prime member only spent $1,300 a year on Amazon after the $119 annual subscription. So, you know, just, just the cross-sells there alone were going to be a big lift for Amazon. And it would kind of allow PillPack to realize its full potential. So, um, when the when the deal gets acquired, uh, get, when the acquisition gets announced, um, the stock prices of all the all the other pharmacies drop. CVS, Rite Aid, Walgreens—they all all their stock price drops, and everyone's celebrating at the PillPack headquarters because they're going to go and kind of eat their lunch. And uh, but uh, there's actually an interesting twist here, where just a few months earlier, before the Amazon deal goes through, Walmart was so close to securing a deal to buy PillPack that staff on both sides had already discussed the possibility of announcing the news to the American public through an appearance on a national morning show. So they were actually booking media trying to get that deal done. And I don't think really, I don't think TJ talks about that anymore because it's probably private or NDA or something. But, um, but the basically at the very, very last stretch of due diligence, Walmart hit the brakes and the deal fell apart. And the reason that people think is because uh, right around that time, the Department of Justice sued Walmart for its pharmacies division's role in the opioid epidemic. And back when the, the actual lawsuit for that took place in 2020, but it's possible that the DOJ was investigating Walmart for their pharmacy business right as they were talking about buying PillPack. So it could have just been like a really, really bad time for them. But when the deal went through, the CEO of Walmart was super pissed. And so he called TJ and said, like, I think you made the wrong decision. We're the right buyer. 
but it was too late and you know the rest is history so PillPack goes to Amazon and there's a couple other interesting things from this deal so um you know, it, obviously, it's a major culture shift. Pillpack's 800 people. Amazon's probably like 80,000 or more. Uh, probably like hundreds of thousands if you include everyone. Um, and so Amazon's whole culture is like very operational, but it's also very fragmented. So, you know, just to get Pillpack integrated with any feature requires dealing with a whole team. Like there's the Prime team. There's the Fulfillment team. There's the e-commerce team. There's like all these different, the the mobile team, the web team, like all this different stuff. So. So, uh, you know, just really, really big, uh, really, really big culture shift. Uh, the two co-founders, TJ and Elliot, they, they stay for basically their full earnout. It seems like they were there for like exactly four years, like every, you know, person that gets acquired. Um, and, uh, and if you read uh, TJ's tweets, you'll see a lot of, you know, spicy uh, trash talking about Amazon and how they can't retain entrepreneurial talent anymore and how they're too big or something like that. But there's this weird, weird thing on the Wikipedia about how um, uh, in December of 2021, Parker and Cohen were removed, TJ and Elliot, were removed from Amazon pharmacy management. Parker was replaced in the reporting chain by Amazon Alexa VP John Love and Neil Lindsay, who had previously overseen Amazon Prime, was put in charge of both Amazon Pharmacy and Amazon Care. Axios described the two as being demoted to consultants, but Amazon said it was not a demotion and that, and that they remain Amazon employees. So this is framed in this Wikipedia entry as like, oh, they're getting like demoted and fired or something. But like it, it's pretty evident that they were like, okay, yeah, we sold this company. Like we're ready to like move on and get out of here. Um, at least that's my read on it. So um, this feels like more like, hey, it was mutually like we're, we're, we're slowly transitioning you out of the business and bringing more Amazon people in. But like we don't want to just rip the bandaid off and be like, oh, it's an Amazon company now because like that's a big culture shift for the 800 or so pill pack employees, probably more as they left. And so like managing that transition over like four years and, and integrating the culture seems really, really important. And, um, so yeah, TJ was recently asked to say something nice about Jeff Bezos. And he just said, I believe Jeff is very smart. <laughs> just, just hilarious, which probably means like, uh, he's like tough to deal with, I guess. I don't know. Um, but you know, probably true. Um, and yeah, Amazon's just incredibly good at scaling businesses, but uh, they just naturally move slower and they have tons of different organizations to integrate with. Um, but ultimately the deal made perfect sense for just everyone. It was the biggest opportunity to, le to reach lots of customers. And it was just a great outcome for every everyone involved. Like the end result was a billion dollars, 60% uh, to investors. So the investors got 600 million and even the late stage investors still got like a 3x because I think they put in money around 300 mil and so they 3x their money in like a year or two good good deal the early the early investors obviously did really well really well 20% went to the founders there were two founders so probably about 100 million per founder and then 20% went to the employees which is great so um teach has been really happy about that and, and kind of you know said as much um but let's review kind of the the outcome from this. So the reason TJ is so interesting is because he's really one of the only successful direct-to-consumer entrepreneurs from the early 2010s era. Uh, and it's it's interesting looking back on the big companies that were founded around this era and look at the the you know the market cap to 
how much money they raised. So rent the rent the runway, which is a clothing rental company, they raised six hundred and eighty-three million dollars at the time of I saw this post was one hundred and seventy-three million market cap. Smile Direct Club raised one point seven billion, and they're trading at one fifty-five million. Uh, Allbirds raised five hundred million, and their market cap was one eighty. Blue Apron raised almost seven hundred mil. Their market cap was forty million. So it's just like again and again, so many companies that just did not do well. And I think TJ really understood, you know, both like when to sell, but also he seems like he ran the business very, very differently. And he talked about the dangers of CAC to LTV math. A, a lot of DC companies think about the customer acquisition cost and its relationship to lifetime value. So a lot of companies will use a, a, a lifetime value calculation that might be miscalculated. Um, and TJ says that like, you know, these companies are kind of hard to fuck up if you just look at everything on a transactional basis or return on ad spend, ROAS basis. But you get into trouble when you overspend against LTV. Um, and most startups wind up using an overstated LTV. And what happens is that they often look at early cohorts. So if you think about the, 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 the early adopters of Blue Apron, they probably were very low churn. They were willing to spend a lot. They, they re, they, the Blue Apron promise of you know, the food in a box, like it really solved the problem. But then the later cohort was more price sensitive, higher churn, uh, and and they just kind of ran out of those early adopters, but they were still probably using that early LTV thinking, oh yeah, this will be, you know, every customer's worth a thousand bucks, so we can go out and pay, you know, $500 to acquire a customer, but that customer only winds up generating them 200 bucks and then they're underwater, so they wind up losing a lot of money. Uh, and these companies just kind of like, they they get too big for like the the size of the, the problem that they're actually solving. Um, so we need to talk about what TJ did after leaving Amazon. But first, I, I, I tease that FBI story, um, which uh, is is not as big of a deal as you know it sounds. It, obviously, FBI is like a huge, uh, huge, huge word, and it sounds very scary. But um, basically, what happened was. Um, PillPack, this was, this was after the acquisition, PillPack had contracted with this company called Remy Health, um, which got data from about customer prescriptions from this company SureScripts, which is a competitor. And so um, they, they, PillPack basically found a way to access patients' prescription information via this Remy Health app. And um, SureScripts had contracted with Remy, but didn't like the fact that PillPack, its competitor, was like accessing its network. So they get really upset. They Amazon threatens to sue SureScripts, and in turn, SureScripts uh, claimed fraud and said it's turning over the matter to the FBI. And so nothing really came of it, but it's just funny that like you know the the healthcare industry is like so high stakes. People like suing each other and stuff. I guess that's kind of like every industry though. Um, but um, you know, SureScripts is owned by a coalition of PillPack competitors, CVS, Express Scripts, and they manage about 80% of all US prescriptions. So um, you know, just kind of funny that he gets to say that he was like, you know, hunted by the FBI. Um, but there's a the there's the question of like what he should do next. You know, he made a ton of money, he sold this successful startup, and then there's this interesting question of what do you do after you exit a successful company and you need to think about what you're going to do with your life? And he shared this post, which I really like, which I'm going to mostly just like read the whole thing essentially because it's so good. Uh, it's called a cliche, not a snowflake. And this guy says, um, uh, I've come to the conclusion that after their first or second exit, almost every entrepreneur goes through an identical existential crisis and thought process around what to do next with their life. 
I can confidently say this because I'm going through it right now. And as part of my process, I've talked to a lot of different entrepreneurs who've experienced something similar. The process looks something like this. After having spent nearly a decade building companies, you finally have the opportunity to lift your head up and see the world at large. There, there are many different problems that need solving and a lot of exciting things happening beyond the myopic, the, the myopic thing you maniacally focused on for the past 10 years. Also, holy shit, while you've been heads down, it feels like the world has passed you by. Things have changed. It's time to catch up. You begin your journey of reflection and start to recognize a couple of different things. Number one, wow, it would be really great to, it would be really great and smart to have a lot more diversification in your portfolio instead of one giant egg. Is there a construct that enables you to do this? Number two, maybe I should be somewhere between more thought, maybe I should be somewhere between more thoughtful to super thoughtful about the idea I want to pursue next. That will probably produce a better outcome. Number three, do I really want to commit another decade plus to one single thing again? Do I really have the energy to do this? So you start to evaluate alternatives to being an entrepreneur. The most obvious one is VC, venture capital. You're cut out for the job because you've built companies. You also think it might be easier than building a company. You will probably work super hard because you care about being great, but you won't suffer nearly the same stress. Also, you can make a lot of money. And if you're not a shitty person, which you probably don't think you are, you genuinely believe entrepreneurs will like and want to work with you. Maybe you become a VC, but you also want to know if there are other configurations that might work for you. Instead of abandoning building things, you come up with the amazing idea that every other entrepreneur has thought of before and decide that instead of building one company at a time, you want to build 10 at a time. It's time for a venture studio slash incubator. I want to be just like Kevin Ryan and the people at Sutter Hill. If Atomic figured it out, so can I. I, just, I, don't, have to put all, I don't just have to put all my eggs in one basket. I can have many baskets simultaneously. Wait. Another alternative to this is just building a hold co. Have you seen IAC? Maybe we can buy companies and make them better in addition, uh, in addition or as a substitute to just building companies. Have you heard of Tiny? Do you listen to podcasts featuring business experts who are building these hold co's? Oh my God, have you heard of Constellation Software? Holy shit, let's fucking go. Eh, that was a close call. I almost bought an HVAC company. Where do I start? Hunting for ideas feels really icky and disingenuous. When I used to build stuff, I did it because I was passionate about the thing. I cared about solving a problem. I didn't just map out markets and analyze companies and say, there's a gap out there, it's time to build. I want that fervor again. Why don't I feel it? Am I too old? Did I lose my edge? I'll just eat some psychedelics and then answer, and then the answers will come to me. Ugh, no answers yet. Maybe, maybe I'll eat some more. Okay, I know the meaning of life now, but I still have no idea what, to fuck, what the fuck to do with mine. Now what? I guess one day at a time and one foot in front of the other. I believe something will inevitably, inescapably call to me and the momentum will just snowball. Just need to optimize for luck and serendipity in the interim. Finally at peace. Let's see where it goes. Step three, profit. And that, my friends, is the cliché tried and tested journey that insane people embark upon when venturing once again into the unknown. And I can see, <laughs> I can see that he's been through this whole thing. Um, it's, it's very funny. I, I, I feel like I've been through that myself too. Um, it's, it's all too real. Um, and yeah, so like in the months since uh, TJ left Amazon, he's built a members only club for car aficionados, a startup outdoor retailer and he built a 12 acre farm in park city for his family that he's turning into like a sustainable farm and he's done you know he's gone heli skiing and 
started collecting cars. He's even financed a uh, documentary about cars. And, uh, you know, where he finally landed was venture capital. So he's uh, now a general partner at the firm Matrix Partners. And uh, he joined because they didn't really have a general partner in charge of healthcare investing. And so, you know, that's what he's going to focus on. And, uh, yeah, I wish him the best. It seems like he's uh, having a lot of fun posting on Twitter. I hope we see more of him. He's a great podcast guest. And he's clearly just like a, you know, entertaining thinker and uh, clearly extremely experienced entrepreneur. So, yeah, that's the story of TJ Parker. Hope you enjoyed it.